Chapter Sixteen of the Best Man. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. The Best Man by Grace Livingston Hill. Chapter Sixteen. The room was very still. The girl did not even sob. He turned after a moment and went back to that bowed golden head there in the deep crimson chair. Look here, he said. I know you can't ever forgive me. I don't expect it. I don't deserve it. But please, don't feel so awfully about it. I'll explain it all to everyone. I'll make it all right for you. I'll take every bit of blame on myself and get plenty of witnesses to prove all about it. The girl looked up with sorrow and surprise in her wet eyes. Why, I do not blame you, she said mournfully. I cannot see how you were to blame. It was no one's fault. It was just an unusual happening, a strange set of circumstances. I could not blame you. There is nothing to forgive, and if there were, I would gladly forgive it. Then what on earth makes you look so white and feel so distressed? He asked in a distracted voice, as a man will sometimes look and talk to the woman he loves when she becomes a tearful problem of despair to his obtuse eyes. Oh, don't you know? No, I don't, he said. You're surely not mourning for that brute of a man to whom you had promised to sacrifice your life. She shook her head and buried her face in her hands again. He could see that the tears were dropping between her fingers, and they seemed to fall red-hot upon his heart. Then what is it? His tone was almost sharp in its demand, but she only cried the harder. Her slender shoulders were shaking with her grief now. He put his hand down softly and touched her bowed head. "'Won't you tell me, dear?' he breathed, and stooping, knelt beside her. The sob ceased, and she was quite still for a moment, while his hand still lay on her hair with that gentle, pleading touch. "'It is because you married me in that, that way, without knowing. Oh, can't you see how terrible?' "'Oh, the folly and blindness of love!' Gordon got up from his knees as if she had stung him. "'You need not feel bad about that any more,' he said in a hurt tone. Did I not tell you I would set you free at once? Surely no one in his senses could call you bound after such circumstances. She was very still for an instant, as if he had struck her, and then she raised her golden head, and a pair of sweet eyes suddenly grown haughty. You mean that I will set you free, she said coldly. I could not think of letting you be bound by a misunderstanding when you are under great stress of mind. You were in no wise to blame. I will set you free. As you please, he retorted bitterly, turning toward the window again. It all amounts to the same thing. There is nothing for you to feel bad about. Yes, there is, she answered with a quick rush of feeling that broke through her assumed haughtiness. I shall always feel that I have broken in upon your life. You have had a most trying experience with me, and you never can quite forget it. Things won't be the same. She paused, and the quiet tears chased each other eloquently down her face. No, said Gordon, still bitterly. Things will never be the same for me. I shall always see you sitting there in my chair. I shall always be missing you from it. But I am glad, glad. 
I would never have known what I missed if it had not been for this. He spoke almost savagely. He did not look around, but she was staring at him in astonishment, her blue eyes suddenly alight. What do you mean? she asked softly. He wheeled round upon her. I mean that I shall never forget you, that I do not want to forget you. I should rather have had these two days of your sweet company than all my lifetime in any other companionship. Oh, she breathed, then, then why did you say what you did about being free? I didn't say anything about being free that I remember. It was you that said that. I said I would set you free. I could not, of course, hold you to a bond you did not want. But I did not say I did not want it. I said I would not hold you if you did not want to stay. Do you mean that if you had known me a little, that is, just as much as you know me now, and had come in there and found out your mistake before it was too late, that you would have wanted to go on with it? She waited for his answer breathlessly. If you had known me just as much as you do now, and had looked up and seen that it was I and not George Hayne you were marrying, would you have wanted to go on and be married? Her cheeks grew rosy and her eyes confused. I asked you first, she said with just a flicker of a smile. He caught the shimmer of light in her eyes and came toward her eagerly, his own face all aglow now with a dawning understanding. Darling, he said, I can go farther than you have asked. From the first minute my eyes rested upon your face under that mist of white veil, I wished with all my heart that I might have known you before any other man had found and won you. When you turned and looked at me with that deep sorrow in your eyes, you pledged me with every fiber of my being to fight for you. I was yours from that instant, and when your little hand was laid in mine, my heart went out in longing to have it stay in mine forever. I know now, as I did not understand then, that the real reason for my not doing something to make known my identity at that instant was not because I was afraid of any of the things that might happen, or any scene I might make, but because my heart was fighting for the right to keep what had been given me out of the unknown. You are my wife, by every law of heaven and earth, if your heart will but say yes. I love you, as I never knew a man could love, and yet, if you do not want to stay with me, I will set you free. But it is true that I should never be the same, for I am married to you in my heart, and always shall be. Darling, look up and answer my question now. He stood before her with outstretched arms, and for answer she rose and came to him slowly with downcast eyes. I do not want to be set free, she said. Then gently, tenderly, he folded his arms about her, as if she were too precious to handle roughly, and laid his lips upon hers. It was the shrill, insistent clang of the telephone that broke in upon their bliss. For a moment Gordon let it ring, but its merciless clatter was not to be denied. So, drawing Celia close within his arm, he made her come with him to the phone. To his annoyance, the haughty voice of Miss Bentley answered him from the little black distance of the phone. His arm was about Celia, and she felt his whole body stiffen with formality. Oh, Miss Bentley, good morning. Your message? Why, no. Ah, well, I have but just come in. A pause during which Celia, panic-stricken, 
handed him the paper on which she had written Julia's message. "'Ah! Oh, oh yes, I have the message. Yes, it is very kind of you,' he murmured stiffly. "'But you will have to excuse me. No, really, it is utterly impossible. I have another engagement.' His arm stole closer around Celia's waist and caught her hand, holding it with a meaningful pressure. He smiled with a grimace toward the telephone, which gladdened her heart. "'Pardon me, I didn't hear that,' he went on. "'Oh, give up my engagement and come?' "'Not possibly.' His voice rang with a glad, decided force, and he held still closer the soft fingers in his hand. "'Well, I'm sorry you feel that way about it. I certainly am not trying to be disagreeable. "'No, I could not come tomorrow night either. I cannot make any plans for the next few days. I may have to leave town again.' It is quite possible I may have to return to New York. Yes, business has been very pressing. I hope you will excuse me. I am sorry to disappoint you. No, of course I didn't do it on purpose. I shall have some pleasant news to tell you when I see you again. Or, with a glance of deep love at Celia, perhaps I shall find means to let you know of it before I see you. The color came and went in Celia's cheeks. She understood what he meant and nestled closer to him. No, no, I could not tell it over the phone. No, it will keep. Good things will always keep if they are well cared for, you know. No, really, I can't. And I'm very sorry to disappoint you tonight, but it can't be helped. Goodbye. He hung up the receiver with a sigh of relief. Who is Miss Bentley? asked Celia with natural interest. She was pleased that he had not addressed her as Julia. Why, she is a... A friend, I suppose you would call her. She has been taking possession of my time lately rather more than I really enjoyed. Still, she is a nice girl. You'll like her, I think. But I hope you'll never get too intimate. I shouldn't like to have her continually around. She... He paused and finished laughing. She makes me tired. I was afraid from her tone when she phoned you that she was a very dear friend, that she might be someone you cared for. There was a sort of proprietorship in her tone. Yes, that's the very word, proprietorship, he laughed. I couldn't care for her. I never did. I tried to consider her in that light one day, because I'd been told repeatedly that I ought to settle down. But the thought of having her with me always was, well, intolerable. The fact is, you reign supreme in a heart that has never loved another girl. I didn't know there was such a thing as love like this. I knew I lacked something, but I didn't know what it was. This is greater than all the gifts of life, this gift of your love. And that it should come to me in this beautiful, unsought way seems too good to be true. He drew her to him once more, and looked down into her lovely face, as if he could not drink enough of its sweetness. And to think you are willing to be my wife, my wife! and he folded her close again. A discreet tap on the door announced the arrival of the man Henry, and Gordon roused to the necessity of ordering lunch. He stepped to the door with a happy smile and held it open. "'Come in a minute, Henry,' he said. "'This is my wife. I hope you will henceforth take her wishes as your special charge, and do for her as you have done so faithfully for me.' The man's eyes shone with pleasure as he bowed low before the gentle lady. "'I's very glad to hear it, sir, and I offers you my congratulations, sir, and a lady, too. 
She can't find no better man in the whole United States than Mars Gordon. I's mighty glad you done got married, sir, and I hopes you both have a mighty fine life. The luncheon was served in Henry's best style, and his dark face shone as he stepped noiselessly about, putting silver and china and glass in place, and casting admiring glances at the lady, who stood holding the little miniature in her hand and asking questions with a gentle voice. "'Your mother, you say? How dear she is! And she died so long ago. You never knew her? Oh, how strange and sweet and pitiful to have a beautiful girl-mother like that!' She put out her hand to his in the shelter of the deep window, and they thought Henry did not see the look and touch that passed between them. But he discreetly averted his eyes, and smiled benignly at the salt-cellars and the celery he was arranging. Then he hurried out to a florist next door, and returned with a dozen white roses, which he arranged in a queer little crystal pitcher, one of the few articles belonging to his mother that Gordon possessed. It had never been used before, except to stand on the mantel. It was after they had finished their delightful luncheon, and Henry had cleared the table and left the room, that Gordon remarked, "'I wonder what has become of George Hayne. Do you suppose he means to try to make trouble?' Celia's hands fluttered to her throat with a little gesture of fear. "'Oh!' she said. "'I had forgotten him. How terrible! He will do something, of course. He will do everything. He will probably carry out all his threats. How could I have forgotten? Perhaps Mamma is now in great distress. What can we do?' "'What can I do?' She looked up at him helplessly, and his heart bounded at the thought that she was his to protect as long as life should last, and that she already depended upon him. "'Don't be frightened,' he soothed her. "'He cannot do anything very dreadful, and if he tries, we'll soon silence him. What he has written in those letters is blackmail. He is simply a big coward, who will run and hide as soon as he is exposed. He thought you did not understand law.' and so took advantage of you. I'm sure I can silence him. Oh, do you think so? But Mamma, poor Mamma, it will kill her. And George will stop at nothing when he is crossed. I have known him too long. It will be terrible if he carries out his threat. Tears were in her eyes. Agony was in her face. We must telephone your mother at once, and set her heart at rest. Then we can find out just what ought to be done said Gordon soothingly. It was unforgivably thoughtless of me not to have done it before. Celia's face was radiant at the thought of speaking to her mother. Oh, how beautiful! Why didn't I think of that before? What perfectly dear things telephones are! With one accord they went to the telephone table. Shall you call them up, or shall I? he asked. You call, and then I will speak to Mamma. she said, her eyes shining with her joy in him. I want them to hear your voice again. They can't help knowing you are all right when they hear your voice. For that he gave her a glance very much worth having. Just how do you account for the fact that you didn't think I was all right yesterday afternoon? I have a very realizing sense that you didn't. I used my voice to the best of my ability, but it did no good then. Well, you see, that was different. There were those letters to be accounted for. Mamma and Jeff don't know anything about the letters. And what are you going to tell them now? She drew her brows down a minute and thought. 
"'You'd better find out how much they already know,' he suggested. "'If this George Hayne hasn't turned up yet, "'perhaps you can wait until you can write. "'Or we might be able to go up tomorrow and explain it ourselves.' "'Oh, could we? How lovely!' "'I think we could,' said Gordon. "'I'm sure I can make it possible. "'Of course, you know a wedding journey isn't exactly in the program of the Secret Service, "'but I might be able to work them for one.' I surely can in a few days, if this Holman business doesn't hold me up. I may be needed for a witness. I'll have to talk with the chief first. Oh, how perfectly beautiful. Then you call them up, and just say something pleasant, anything, you know, and then say I'll speak to Mama. She gave him the number, and in a few minutes a voice from New York said, Hello? Hello, called Gordon. Is this Mr. Jefferson Hathaway? Well... This is your new brother-in-law. How are you all? Your mother recovered from all the excitement and weariness? That's good. What's that? You've been trying to phone us in Chicago? But we're not in Chicago. We changed our minds and came to Washington instead. Yes, we're in Washington, the Harris Apartments. We have been very selfish not to have communicated with you sooner. At least I have. Celia hasn't had any choice in the matter. I've kept her so busy. Yes, She's very well and seems to look happy. She wants to speak for herself. I'll try to arrange to bring her up tomorrow for a little visit. I want to see you, too. We've a lot of things to explain to you. Here is Celia. She wants to speak to you. Celia, her eyes shining, her lips quivering with suppressed excitement, took the receiver. Oh, Jeff, dear, it's good to hear your voice, she said. Is everything all right? Yes, I've been having a perfectly beautiful time, and I've something fine to tell you. All those nice things you said to me just before you got off the train are true. Yes, he's just as nice as you said, and a great deal nicer besides. Oh, yes, I'm very happy, and I want to speak to Mama, please. Jeff, is she all right? Is she perfectly well and not fretting a bit? You know you promised to tell me. What's that? She thought I looked sad? Well, I did, but that's all gone now. Everything is perfectly beautiful. Tell Mother to come to the phone, please. I want to make her understand. I'm going to tell her, dear, she whispered, looking up at Gordon. I'm afraid George will get there before we do and make her worry. For answer, he stooped and kissed her, his arm encircling her and drawing her close. Whatever you think best, dearest, he whispered back. Is that you, Mama? With a happy smile, she turned back to the phone. Dear Mama, yes, I'm all safe and happy, and I'm so sorry you have worried. We won't let you do it again. But listen, I've got something to tell you, a surprise, Mama. I did not marry George Hayne at all. No, I say I did not marry George Hayne at all. George Hayne is a wicked man. I can't tell you about it over the phone, but that was why I looked so sad. Yes, I was married all right, but not to George. He's, oh, so different, Mother. You can't think. He's right here beside me now, and, Mother, he's just as dear. You'd be very happy about him if you could see him. What did you say? Didn't I mean to marry George? Why, Mother, I never wanted to. I was awfully unhappy about it, and I knew I made you feel so, too, though I tried not to. But I'll explain all about it. You'll be perfectly satisfied when you know all about it. No, 
there's nothing whatever for you to worry about. Everything is right now, and life looks more beautiful to me than it ever did before. What's his name? Oh! She looked up at Gordon with a funny little expression of dismay. She had forgotten, and he whispered it in her ear. Cyril. It's Cyril, mother. Isn't that a pretty name? Which name? Oh, the first name, of course. The last name? Gordon, he supplied in her ear again. Cyril Gordon, mother, she said, giggling in spite of herself at her strange predicament. Yes, mother, I am very, very happy. I couldn't be happier unless I had you and Jeff, too. And, she paused, hesitating at the unaccustomed name, and Cyril says we're coming to visit you tomorrow. We'll come up and see you and explain everything. And you're not to worry about George Hayne if he comes. Just let Jeff put him off by telling him you have sent for me, or something of the sort. And don't pay any attention to what he says. What? You say he did come? How strange. And he hasn't been back? I'm so thankful. He's dreadful. Oh, mother, you don't know what I've escaped. And Cyril is good and dear. What? You want to speak to him? All right. He's right here. Good-bye, mother dear, till tomorrow. And you'll promise not to worry about anything. All right. Here is Cyril. Gordon took the receiver. Mother, I'm taking good care of her, just as I promised. And I'm going to bring her for her flying visit up to see you tomorrow. Yes, I'll take good care of her. She is very dear to me. The best thing that ever came into my life. Then a mother's blessing came thrilling over the wires and touched the handsome, manly face with tenderness. Thank you, he said. I shall try always to make you glad you said those words. They returned to looking in each other's eyes after the receiver was hung up, as if they had been parted a long time. It seemed somehow as if their joy must be greater than any other married couple, because they had all their courting yet to do. It was beautiful to think of what was before them. There was so much on both sides to be told, and to be told over again, because only half had been told. And there were so many hopes and experiences to be exchanged, so many opinions to compare and to rejoice over, because they were alike on many essentials. Then there were the rooms to be gone through, and Gordon's pictures and favorite books to look at and talk about, and plans for the future to be touched upon, just barely touched upon. The apartment would do until they could look about and get a house, Gordon said, his heart swelling with the proud thought that at last he would have a real home, like his other married friends, with a real princess to preside over it. Then Celia had to tell all about the horror of the last three months, with the unpleasant shadows of the preceding years back of it. She told this in the dusk of evening, before Henry had come in to light up, and before they had realized that it was almost dinner-time. She told it with her face hidden on her husband's shoulder and his arms close about her, to give her comfort at each revelation of the story. They tried also to plan what to do about George Hayne. And then there was the whole story of Gordon's journey and commission, from the time the old chief had called him into the office, until he came to stand beside her at the church altar, and they were married. It was told in careful detail, with all the comical, exasperating and pitiful incidents of white dog and little newsboy, 
but the strangest part about it all was that gordon never said one word about julia bentley and her imaginary presence with him that first day and he never even knew that he had left out an important detail celia laughed over the white dog and declared they must bring him home to live with them and she cried over the story of the brave little newsboy and was eager to visit him in new york promising herself all sorts of pleasure in taking him gifts and permanently bettering his condition and it was in this way that gordon incidentally learned that his wife had a fortune in her own right a fact that for a time gave him great uneasiness of mind until she had soothed him and laughed at him for an hour or more for gordon was an independent creature and had ideas about supporting his wife by his own toil besides it seemed an unfair advantage to have taken a wife and a fortune as it were unaware but celia's fortune had not spoiled her and she soon made him see that it had always been a mere incident in her scheme of living comfortable and pleasant incident to be sure but still an incident to be kept always in the background and never for a moment to be a cause for self-congratulation or pride gordon found himself dreading the explanation that would have to come when he reached new york and faced his wife's mother and brother celia had accepted his explanations because somehow by the beautiful ways of the spirit her soul had found and believed in his soul before the truth was made known to her but would her mother and brother be able also to believe and he fell to planning with celia just how he should tell the story and this led to his bringing out a number of letters and papers that would be worth while showing as credentials and every step of the way as celia got glimpse after glimpse into his past her face shone with joy and her heart leaped with the assurance that her lot had been cast in goodly places for she perceived not only that this man was honored and respected in high places but that his early life had been particularly pure and true the strange loneliness that had surrounded his young manhood seemed suddenly to have broken ahead of him and to have opened out into the glory of the companionship of one peculiarly fitted to fill the need of his life thus they looked into one another's eyes reading their life joy and entered into the beautiful miracle of acquaintanceship. End of chapter 16